we'll go ahead and grab your Bibles. First Samuel 17. You got it, Jojo? Uh, when your daddy comes back, holler at him. All right. No big deal. No rush, little buddy. Uh, we're in First Samuel 17. And uh, so here's the deal. You're probably not getting out early. You already knew that. And I can't blame it on Danny this time. Can this morning, you know. Uh, just felt jealous. So I, I thought I'll, I'll take the blame tonight. Take one for the team. Um, but I want to do something that, that we frequently do like on Wednesday nights in our study of Genesis. That, that, that we want to see how, how the Bible is, is one full story. Um, but chapter 7 of 2 Samuel is, is, of course, the Davidic covenant. A major, major portion of Scripture in, as the story of, of the Bible unfolds. And one of the things that when you really were to summarize the, the, the Davidic covenant, it comes down to the presence of God, right? Build a house. That's the goal. And that's what's going to happen. Mixed with the promise of children. Now, where in the Bible do you see the presence of God at the type of temple with the promise of children? Well, the story, of course, is Adam and Eve, Noah, the Exodus, and on and on it goes. So I want us to, to, to uh, look broadly at what it is that's actually happening in 1 and 2 Samuel. It's, 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 uh, when you read Scripture, it's good to read it uh, on the ground, verse by verse, in a lot of detail. It's also good to read it from the air where you can see these, these major themes. So what we want to do is we want to start reading uh, the story of David and Goliath. I trust you're familiar with it. It's going to take us some time to, to get to it. We want to exegete it in the way we did last year, but we at least want to use it as, as a launching pad to look at and explore some themes. 1 Samuel 17, if you will stand with me, reverence God's word. We'll just read the first 11 verses. I, I'm assuming that you are familiar with uh, the story. Writer of 1 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Spirit. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at at Sako, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Sako and Ezekiah, and Ephes Damim, and saw and the men of Israel were gathered in camp in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and a weight of coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let them come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. The Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day, give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and Israel heard these words of Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's go, Lord, and pray. Our Father, as always, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet. Your word were transformed for your glory. Use us today. Um, and may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May you be seated. Since graduating... Uh, from seminary or seminary or cemetery, whatever you, term you want to use, uh, the thing that has really gripped me in my study of Scripture is 
how the Bible is not just a collection of stories and myths and parables and, you know, whatever term you, people may use. It, it's, it is a collection of narratives that tells a single narrative. It's, it's, it's not a, um, it is a story, not an anthology. And it's very important that we see it that way. And so when we read the Bible, we, we are reading what came before it, and we are anticipating everything that follows it, for it is truly God's story. And the themes that are introduced in the opening chapters of the Bible, uh, and we've looked at many of them, particularly on Wednesday nights, um, they, they, they unfold for us. We looked at rest, I believe it was last week, in some detail. That's a theme introduced in the opening chapters that continues all the way through the end. We can do this with love and peace and temples and everything else. The most prominent story of the Bible, if, if you were to ask me what is the primary story of the Bible, I would point you to two words to look for. The one word is seed. The other word is serpents. Seed and serpents. And one of the things that struck me when I was considering the uh, Davidic covenant last week and this week was how, how that theme, seed and serpent, is so prominent in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And that is not an accident. Uh, this storyline really picks up, of course, you have the woman who will give birth and you have a serpent who leads the uh, first couple into sin. But is that prophecy we've referenced a million times in six and a half years, the Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity or hostility, there will be war. Notice there between you, that is the serpent, and the woman. Notice here the hostility is between the serpent and the woman. But then you notice between your offspring, so the offspring of the serpent, and her offspring, the offspring of the woman. He, that is the offspring of, of the woman, shall bruise, notice here, not the offspring of the serpent's head. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. You will merely manage to bruise his heel. That is the first prophecy of Scripture. I believe, among other things, there's a veiled reference to the virgin birth. After all, women do not produce the seed. In fact, the Greek word for seed clearly connects it to, to men. And, and so what you have there is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, and this sets up the Bible. So consider some, a few characters, just for the sake of, of, of summary. We, we can't spend as much time on this that we've done in the past, but, but just sake of summary. We start with Adam, right? The story of Adam and Eve. Here you get the, 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 the battle of the seeds, if you will, the seed of the woman, the seed of the servant. And, and so as, as chapter 3 closes the Genesis, we come into chapter 4. What is it that we find? We find the woman is giving birth. Eve is, is going to have children. She's going to have two sons, one named Cain, one named Abel. And the assumption is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and then get back into the Garden of Eden. But what happens? Well, the story moves from Adam to it moves to the story of Cain and Abel. So we have two brothers. And what do we have? We have a rivalry between two offsprings. One is good, one is bad, but it looks like the bad triumphs over the good. Cain triumphs over evil. And the language is clearly serpentine and animalistic with Cain. We don't have time to get into all of that. And then what happens after that? You get a genealogy of Cain. What is a genealogy? It is the story of offspring. Cain begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. And what you see is the decreasing of the line of Cain. 
Seth then replaces Abel. That's the biblical language that he replaces Abel. So we have good seed. And what do we get following the birth of Seth? That is offspring language. That is seed language. You get a genealogy. It's not an accident then. They're right at the beginning. Following Adam, you get Cain and Abel. And what do you get? You get language about offspring, good versus bad. In fact, it is. we meet two very important people in the line of Seth. One is Enoch. Why is he so important? Enoch doesn't die. Remember that the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And so what we see then is if you eat of the promise tree, a tree that bears fruit, that's seed language, by the way, you get life. But if you eat of, of the fruit of the serpent, what it is you get is death. So with the line of Cain, you get murderers and they build cities. What it is that you get of the line of Seth? You get longevity, and you even get one who lives. In fact, the last name mentioned in the line of Seth is Noah. Ever heard of him? What does Noah do? He preserves the human race. God uses him. Although he sends judgment upon the wicked by the means of water, it's actually retelling the creation story, he preserves righteous seed. And so we, the reader, are to assume, see there, the head of the serpent has been crushed. But what we find in the story of Noah is, is, no, the head of the serpent hasn't been crushed. Within Noah himself is, is a bit of that seed of the serpent. What does he do? He goes and commits the same sin of Adam. He is near a plant. Here it's a vineyard as opposed to a tree. He uh, finds himself naked as Adam and Eve were naked. And he ends up having a son who is cursed. Remember, Adam had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Noah had three sons, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. One of them is of the bat seed. It's the same story. We've looked at that a thousand times. Well, that allows us to jump to Abraham. What is Abraham? Abraham is called from among the nations, the nation, the, the, among the bad seed, and God makes him good. And what is the promise of Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant? That through his line, his offspring, the, whole, the nations, the world will be blessed. So what happens? In chapter 16, Ishmael's born. Ishmael's not the promised son. That creates problem. So what we get is another Cain and Abel story, a rivalry between brothers. Isaac is born in chapter 21 to Abraham. He is the son of promise. And so you get, you get Isaac versus Ishmael. What happens with, in chapter 25, you get the line of Ishmael, and they become a thorn in Israel's side. But then in chapter 25, later, you get the line of Isaac. Isaac becomes the father of two sons. And guess what? They are rivals, Jacob and Esau. You see in a pattern here. Jacob has a few sons. Are they rivals? Yeah, they throw one of them into a pit and sell him into slavery. I would say that is at least called a rivalry. You may want to use a stronger term, but you see here is all offspring language and it's all serpentine language, right? This is the seed of the serpents. So thus far, we see the battle between the seed and the serpent. And it only continues as you come into the story of Moses. So, so we go from Adam to Cain and Abel to Noah to Abraham to Moses. This is all just in review to get to, get to David. Notice how Exodus begins. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, if all you've read is the book of Genesis, is that good or bad news? It's good. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Here is Israel in a foreign land, out of the promised land. The God, is, God has said, this is where you're going to live. They are out of that land, and God is blessing them despite their circumstances. Something for Christians to, to remember. They are fruitful and they multiplied. But how does Pharaoh respond? See, Israel, who are the seed of the woman, 
They respond with life. They give life. Children, fruitful, multiply. But what does Pharaoh do? Literally armed with a serpent on his forehead. He murders them. He throws them into the Nile River, literally turning it into a river of blood. In fact, the language used to describe Pharaoh is interesting. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. That word shrewdly is eerily similar to describing of the serpent who, remember, he was crafty. Used what should have been wisdom for death. And what follows the work of the serpent? Death. The work of the Pharaoh results in death. The seed of the woman leads to life. The seed of the serpent leads to death. This is the storyline, right? And so it's no accident then that the later prophets, when they speak of the Egyptian experience, when they talk about Pharaoh, they will compare him to either a sea monster or to a dragon. Let me give you two examples here. We are going somewhere with this. You've got to listen quickly, okay? Isaiah 51, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations long ago. Was it not you who pierced the dragon? See, there's the word. Was it not you who dried up the sea, waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Clearly, he's connecting the, the Exodus experience with the slaying of a dragon, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. You see it there. Same thing is laid out in Ezekiel 29. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Clearly it's labeled there. Prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God. Uh, by the way, that's Adonai Yahweh, like we saw David this morning. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lives in the midst of the seas, the sea monster. It's no accident then that, that we see this. The prophets also will later describe the messianic age as the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the ultimate seed of the woman, as slain a dragon, Isaiah 27, 1. And that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing servant. Serpent, right, rather. Leviathan, the twisting servant, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Does this help you understand Revelation just a little bit, the red dragon? This is, this is what John is picking up. He knows his Bible quite well. Actually, he knows it very well. So just as a royal deliverer comes in Genesis, in the form of Abraham, for example, Joseph, Noah, so in the book of Exodus comes a royal deliverer in Moses. He is raised in a palace, the seed of a woman who preserves his life against certain death by putting him into a sea. By the way, you know what word the Bible uses to describe the basket Moses is in? You tell me this is important. I've told you this before. The Hebrew word is the same word used for Noah to describe the ark. His mother, the woman who gave birth, an offspring seed, placed him into an ark. And out of that came the deliverance of God's people. That story sound familiar? It's a retelling of it, isn't it? Other imagery abounds that point to this cosmic struggle. The parting of the Red Sea. Tell me if this sounds familiar. The seed of the woman, in this case the Israelites, find refuge from God's judgment through water where God causes a great wind and dry ground to come up from under the water. It's the flood. And then notice what happens. The enemies of God, the seed of the serpents, they are drowned. Sounds like the flood, doesn't it? Well, that prepares us for what, what comes. I mean, we're doing a lot of skipping here. 
In 1 Samuel, prior to the coming of David, what it is that we see is this seed and serpent language. How does the book of 1 Samuel begin? It begins with a woman who wants to bear a child. You think that's an accident? Can you think of another woman who was infertile, who gave birth to a promised child, who, let's just randomly pick one, may have been the father of the Israelites? It was his wife, right? So to Hannah comes as she's praying, give me a child and I will give him to you. So the story begins with this, this hope of life. And God gives life. And it's the story of Hannah. And the language is the same word used to describe her offsprings, the same word used in Genesis 3.15 to describe the seed of the woman. 1 Samuel 2.10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. Um, actually, this is, it. this is the royal priest. This is the promise of where Samuel's going to go. Forgive me, I, I did a little bit of skipping. Um, but uh, you notice there that strength to his king and horn of his anointed, a royal priest. Forgive me, I skipped. Same thing in chapter 2, verse 35, as Eli talked to him. But here, here, here's with Hannah. So, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant the word highlighted there, son, is the word seed, offspring. In English, we make it son because that's what she's talking about. But theologically, in the narrative of the Bible, she's saying, give me a seed that you promised Eve. Give me that. This is what Israel needs. This is the time of the judges. Same thing in chapter 2. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you seed, offspring. Same word. Same word used in Genesis 3. Later in 2 Samuel, remember the story. We saw this several weeks ago. You remember that um, one of Saul's sons survived named Ishbosheth, right? And, and, and that was on your quiz, so hopefully you remember this. And you remember that Ishbosheth doesn't want him to die, but uh, he's killed anyways. Notice this language here. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. They said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son, the seed, the offspring of Saul your enemy who sought your life. Now notice there the connection between the crushing of the head by decapitation and seed. Sounds like Genesis 3.15. So we, the reader, are to assume at this point, maybe, just maybe, David is the seed of the woman who will bring justice and peace and Eden back to the earth. This is the desire of all of our hearts. Maybe you still don't, don't believe me. You're wondering, what in the world are we talking about tonight? Well, back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. David and Jonathan are talking, right? Jonathan knows David is the anointed of God. And David uses some interesting language. In 1 Samuel 20, it says, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, between my seed and your seed. It's the same thing. Still going. Same thing in 1 Samuel 24. Swear to me, Jonathan says, therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off. Notice that language of cutting off. That's what happens to Ishbosheth, isn't it? Cut off my seed, my offspring after me. It's Jonathan's request of David prior to his death. And David will honor that with Mephibosheth. We'll see that pretty soon in the story of David in 2 Samuel. Well, maybe you're, you're still thinking, okay, I, I just don't understand, preacher. Maybe I can prove it here. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, Saul just became king. He is still trying to unite the Israelites. And a guy named King Nahash 
comes and he threatens the Israelites, who were still kind of loosely connected tribes. Remember, this is after the days of the judges where they were separate tribes. And uh, he is the king of the Ammonites. Now, remember, the Ammonites are descendants of Lot and his daughter. Right? We looked at that a few weeks ago in Genesis. He, that is King Nahash, comes to destroy Israel, but God uses Saul to destroy Nahash and the Ammonites. Okay, it's a pretty straightforward story. A lot more going on there that I, we, we talked about on Wednesday night, so I don't want to revisit all that, but there's a whole lot going on there. Now, what, is the, what does the name Nahash mean, King Nahash? It literally means snake. It is the same word used in Genesis 3 to say there was a serpent more crafty than all the other beasts of the field. Same word, Nahash. He literally crushes a snake. King Snake, that's his name. I'd like to talk to his mother. <laughs> Why she picked out that name, right? You know, like, I don't care what your husband wanted to name him. You do not sign that birth certificate, all right? I, I, I don't, that might be a grounds for a divorce. If someone were to come here and say, we've decided to name our child Snake, I'm like, you can do better, lady, okay? You can do better. You can find a better man. I'm sorry, it's not working out. That's got to be a fourth option for a, a divorce, has to be. Anyways, those are jokes. So the king of Israel destroys the snake. And so the reader is then reading, is Saul the promised seed? The king, the royal priest who will come and deliver Israel, come and bring peace to, to, to the cosmos, Eden, return. But what happens after Saul defeats King Nahash? Nothing good for Saul. Nothing good, right? He continues to disobey the Lord. Eventually, he seeks to destroy the Lord's anointed in David seeks a necromancer at the end on the eve of his own death where he dies in battle. Nothing good happens. He has this climactic moment where he crushes the head of the serpent. Yeah, he does. But what happens is we discover within Saul is enough of that brokenness, enough of that fallen seed that we start to wonder maybe he is the seed of the serpent, right? But what does the story of David do? Well, what it is that we discover is God has anointed this, this other king. He's a shepherd like Moses and Abraham and, and Joseph and all the others. He's, he's different. And we, we saw this last week in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, what is that word there? Seed, offspring. Isn't this starting to sound familiar? Who shall come from your body, I would establish his kingdom. Notice the promise there. It is house, that is the presence of God, and seed. You will be fruitful and multiply, and I will be there with your people. We're back to the Garden of Eden in theory, right? That's, that's the hope of the Davidic covenant. That's why it's so important. It's the hope of the Abrahamic covenant. You remember that when, when Abraham receives the covenant in Genesis 12, what does he go do? He then goes and plants a tree. He builds an altar at a tree. The Oaks of Mamre creates his own Garden of Eden. David is seeking to do the same thing. And when he's seeking to create, build the temple, the presence of God among his people, God is talking about offspring. It's the same story in Genesis and in Noah and everything else. Well, in 1 Samuel 16, we get the anointing of David. So like Joseph, David is chosen despite his age and rank within his family. Remember, Joseph was bragging about how he's the man and they're going to fall down before him. And they said, that's impossible. You're too young. And it happened nonetheless. And so we come to the story of Goliath. Let me show you a few things in Goliath. I, I wish we had time to really dive into this. I want to show you, did I put these up here? Yeah, first of all, notice his armor. Look at verse 5 here 
verse 5, uh, he had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Here's, here's one of those moments where my word-for-word -word translation actually, I think, does an injustice because it's trying to bring clarity rather than uh, faithfulness, right? Uh, so mine says coat of mail. Well, okay, so he's a medieval knight. You know, I guess is how we're supposed to read it. That's not what the Hebrew says. Anyone got the NIV? Anyone here got NIV? The non-inspired version that's going to get it right this time? That's a joke. The NIV is perfectly fine. NIV is right. It's actually more literal. It describes Goliath's armor as scaly. You see where this is going? Goliath has armor. There in verse 5, I got it up there, scaly. His armor is scaly. Secondly, consider Goliath's weapons. Notice the word used there is bronze. It's all over the place right there, right? Verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze. He was armed with a coat of mail or scaly. Uh, I'm using my ESV up there now. The weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. In verse 6, he had a bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze between his shoulders. Later, we see verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head. So there's a lot of bronze going on here. Now notice, David rejects the bronze. He doesn't want it. I got a slingshot and my wits about me, right? He's going at this like the hobbits to Mordor, right? He's, he's just a little guy. He ain't got much about him, but he's going to conquer, conquer this, this giant. But Goliath is armored in bronze and in scaly uh, uh, material. Well, what's interesting is, remember, in Hebrew, there are no vowels. And so it's easy, and, and, it's, and the Hebrew writers use wordplay. You can have a word that is spelt a certain way that can have multiple meanings. Remember, there's no vowels, so, so you can't get clarity on something. The vowels are added later for, for, for us that don't speak Hebrew. Uh, but initially, there, 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 there aren't any. And the word for bronze is almost identical to the word snake. You remember in Numbers 21, Moses builds a bronze snake. You can put the two words together almost identical to each other. It looks like a snake snake or a bronze bronze. Thirdly, look at his death. His armor, his weapons, his death. David stone strikes Goliath, this serpentine-like character. I believe in the head. There's some debate about that. No point in chasing that rabbit. Now remember that the the promise of Genesis 3.15 is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. What does David do? He, 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 he throws the stone in his head. Think of, a, think of a baseball. It's about the size it would have been. Think of Randy Johnson throwing a fastball right to his head. Now, when Goliath falls, does he fall backwards or forward? Remember your Bible? It's going to be important detail. He falls forward, right? Now, why, what happens? Here is this scaly, armored giant, which takes us back to the story of Noah, right? The giants, sons of God, all that sort of stuff. And in the Exodus, they, they come across the, Amalek, uh, the, the, the Amalekites, all them, the giants, all them. Well, he falls forward and literally eats dust. He lies on his belly and eats the dust of the earth. Does that sound familiar? Let me see if I can prove it to you. Genesis 3, 14, the Lord God said to the serpents, bronze, because you have done this, curse are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. See, this starting to sound familiar. Let's look finally at Goliath's legacy. I don't, we don't have time to, to get into this. So back at 3, 3, um, uh, 3, verse 13 to 14, 
One, I think, likely interpretation of these verses is, is that Habakkuk looks back at the Goliath narrative in order to get a picture of the Messianic kingdom. Notice there, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Does that sound like Genesis 3.15? Now, some may disagree that this is going back to the Goliath, and that's perfectly fine. I, I, I don't want to focus on all of that. That is Goliath's legacy. So clearly, uh, I think the Bible looks back and wants us to see the serpentine images. And so what happens is, is David slays the serpentine giants. So he is both Adam and Noah in this story, right? He is also like Moses, right, in, in, in this story. And what happens is we get his slow rise into the kingdom. And eventually in 2 Samuel, he is crowned king of Israel. And for some reason, it's out of order. And much of 2 Samuel is out of order. We saw that with the Davidic covenant, it's out of order. I think it belongs really after the Bathsheba, sometime after the Bathsheba narrative, even after the Absalom narrative. We'll get to Absalom here in a minute. But David's progeny is mentioned. Now, chronologically, in one hand, he's already had children, but he has other children that are mentioned that he, that he, hasn't, he hasn't had yet. And it's just put, oh, by the way, David became king. Here's his kids, right? It's 2 Samuel 3. His sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn is Ammon. Um, uh, second, Achilleab. We need to talk about these names, right? The third is Absalom, right? Um, uh, fourth is Adonijah. Fifth is Shephathi. Yeah, you can't pronounce it either, right? These, 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 these are, these are his, his sons. Now, Notice then what happens. A few chapters later, we saw this a few weeks ago, David and Michal get in a, in a marriage fight, right? And we talked about that. They did not handle it well. She externalizes her brokenness. He internalizes it broken. What comes out of that? Well, uh, she no longer has children. You think any of this is significant now? Of course it is. Because immediately after this verse... You come right into chapter 7, which is what we've been looking at the last two weeks. And what is the emphasis? David wants to build a house for the Lord. The Lord wants to build a house for David. And the house of David is not a building. He already lives in one. It's a lineage. It will not come from McCall. It will come through someone else. Someone we haven't met in the narrative. But it will come through another woman. Well, if you will, skip with me to 2 Samuel chapter 10. I hope you are still with me, and I hope you find this stuff fascinating. If nothing else, forgive me for nerding out for one Sunday evening, okay? This is the stuff that gets me excited. 2 Samuel 10. I just want to look at two verses here, but I think it's helpful if you look at it yourself. David is king, of course. He, he's, he's had these triumphs in verse 4 and 5. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then returned. If that does not bless your heart today, I just, I don't, I don't have anything else for you. I mean, I have no doubt that when you were in Sunday school, these two verses you had memorized by third grade, right? You're like, what in the world are we reading here? Well, let's see what we can do with this. Who is King Hanun? He is an Ammonite king. 
Would you like to guess who his father is? You've been paying attention? King Nahash. King snake. Which means David, the anointed of God, king of Israel, shepherd, slays the seed of the snake. Literally. Defeats him. But notice what Hanun does here. In verse 2, David shows Hanun kindness. This is a pattern with David. He, he, he seems to always show respect to princes and princesses, right? Ishbosheth was, was one. He'll do it with Absalom later, really, really to, 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 to no effect. He does it with Hanun here. He, he says, look, I want to show you kindness. Let's just get along, right? Why can't we all just get along? Hanun takes this gesture and he is insulted by it. Right? And, and so he, he, he interprets David's kindness there in verse 3 as craftiness. He's spying on us. He, he sent these servants in to, to spy on us, to see what's really going on, so he could attack us. So in verses 4 and 5, Hanun, note the language we just read, brings shame upon the servants of David. Now, how did they bring shame upon the servants? They did two things. One, they shaved their beards. I get that, okay? No, don't come shave my beard, okay? Uh, I, I like my beard. Secondly, they stripped them down naked. Can you think of a story in the Bible, let's just say Genesis 2 and 3, where Nudity is associated with shamefulness. And in the middle is a seed of a serpent. Didn't this coming together? So what does David do? Notice in verse 5, he brings honor to his servants by covering them up. Here, hide in Jericho and stay until your beards grow back. David then takes the role of clothing his people. And what does he do? From the rest of the story, he goes and destroys the seed of the serpent. And guess what happens next in chapter 11? How about we turn to chapter 11? Now, remember, what is the story of Saul? Saul defeats the king's snake. We're wondering, is he Messiah? Is he the guy that we're looking for? After all, he literally slayed the snake. Right after he does that, that's the climax of his kingdom. Right after he does that, it just, it just declines for Saul, doesn't it? What's chapter 11 of 2 Samuel about? He slays the seed of the serpent. In chapter 11, it's Bathsheba. But I want you to see the language, verses 2 and 3 here. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and once said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and she was being purifying herself from her uncleanness. So she returned to her house. The woman conceived. She sent and told David, I am pregnant. We know the story. But are you looking at it a little different now? Where is David? He's in that house, right? Remember, he wants to build a house for God because he's built his house of cedar. He's in the house of cedar. Everyone else is out at war. He should be out slaying serpents, but he's not. He's staying here. 
staying here near his garden because a king's palace would almost always have a garden in the ancient Near Eastern world. And it is above everything else in the city. So what you have then is a mountain, if we can use that word, a mountain, a hill, a garden here atop that can then look down. By the way, the Garden of Eden is very much described by Ezekiel as a mountain that then can, can look down. The garden is part of Eden. Uh, uh, so so it's, it's built like, like we've done that on Wednesday nights. I, I don't want to spend forever on it. But notice what he is doing here. David is replaying the story of Adam and Eve. In verse 2, he's at his palace near a large garden looking down. And then what does he do? Look at the language there in the text. It's right in front of you. Number one, he saw. What does the text say about Eve? By the way, it's the same word in Genesis 3. Eve saw that the fruit was good. Secondly, he saw a woman bathing. Now, what does that have to do with the Genesis narrative? If she is bathing, she is unclothed, like Adam and Eve were. He brings shame as a result upon her and her household. Thirdly, he saw she was beautiful, or that is delightful to the eyes. In fact, the word there used for the word beautiful in ESV is the word used in Genesis 3 that, remember, she saw the fruit and it was delightful to the eyes. It's the same word delightful as the word here for good. It's the word good. Remember, it's, it's the tree of, of, of good and evil. It's the word good. He saw that she was good. Eve saw the fruit was good. We've used English language to help us with the narrative, but it's the word good. It's a very simple word. So, so the same temptation that Eve had in the garden, he has in his palace. Fourthly, he takes for himself. It's right there in the text. Did, did you notice that? Maybe it stuck out to you. Verse four, so David sent messengers and took her. Much the same way Eve took of the fruits, the same Hebrew word, and gave to her husband. Same word. In fact, it's, the connections are more than that. In both narratives, David and Eve have a conversion before sinning, have a conversation before sinning. So, so um, if, if you see there, he is talking to his servants. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What does Eve do? She has an entire conversation with a snake. David and Eve try to cover up their sin. What does David do? He has Uriah killed. What does Eve do? She hides and she covers up her shame. That's what David does. He's trying to cover up the shame. Both experience the death of a son and another son to replace the first. Remember that, that, that the child here that Bathsheba is pregnant with will die under the judgment of God. What happens to Adam and Eve? They lose a son. And a son will replace that son. Solomon for David, Seth for Adam and Eve. Both come under judgment. So you get, you get the judgment passage from God to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. Nathan will later in, in this, in this uh, chapter 12 confront David. It's the same story. And both have a son murdered by another son. So Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. They have one boy kill their other boy. Well, what happens here with the story of David? He has one son named Absalom kill another son. And so what we are to grab here is maybe David's not the promise seed. Look quickly at the story of Absalom. And, and, and we don't, can't really look at all that we can. We, we said already that Absalom kills his brother. It's right there for you. Uh, this is following the, the uh, assault of his sister. Uh, notice also Absalom deceives Israel like the servant. He also, by the way, 
and, and there's some debate about this, but we'll just roll with it. He chooses Asa, who is the grandson of King Nahash, to be the leader of his army. Come on, people. It's just getting too obvious, isn't it? The parallels between Absalom and the serpent narrative in Genesis is not accidental. So what you get then is in both 1 and 2 Samuel, two kings who follow the same trajectory. Saul defeats the serpent and immediately his fall begins. David defeats the seed of the serpent and immediately his fall begins. So David, like Saul, is described as a royal priest in many ways, but in the end he proves to be unfaithful and unworthy to be called and considered the ultimate seed. We are left as the reader to look elsewhere. This is the problem with, with reading the Bible, isn't it, right? Because it starts out with, keep looking, a seed's coming, look for it, and we get seed language. Like, all right, here it is, gotta be Cain. No, no, it's not gonna be him. Not going to be him. Noah. Maybe it's Noah. And then he, you know, has too many to drinks after the fun. No, it's not, it's not going to be him. We come to Abraham. What, what does Abraham do the second he gets the promise is he then threatens his offspring by giving his wife away. No, it's not, 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 not going to be him. Moses. Maybe it's Moses. He's on the ark, delivers the people. And what happens is he brings judgment upon himself. He can't even enter the promised land. That's no, it's not Moses. Maybe it's Joshua. No, it's not going to be Joshua. The judges, after all, that, that, that they, they have children and the land is fruitful and everything's great. But after 40 years, however long it is, what happens? The people of Israel fall apart. It's not them. And we get Saul. We think maybe he's it. He's the royal priest. Surely he's it. But it's not. We get David. He slays a serpentine a giant, which connects Adam and Noah and Moses, and then he slays the seed of the serpent. We think surely this is it, but what we discover is David is merely human. So what happens to David is what happens to all of us. He dies. Spoiler alert. That's how the book ends. In fact, maybe you want to look at it. 2 Samuel 23. You're not going to get out on time. That's okay. It's Danny's fault. Uh, <laughs> These are the last words of David, chapter 23, verse 1. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. You see the seed language already? And notice this is an oracle, not a psalm. It's a prophecy. You think that's going to be important? If the entire narrative is, where is Messiah, and it's not David, that oracle is going to be important. The oracle of a man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Are, are you seeing where this is going? Notice here, he, this is a prophecy. He's looking forward. What is he looking forward to? One who will rule, a king. And he knows this king will come from his line. One will rule justly over men, not like Saul, not like David. The reader is left wondering, is Solomon this, 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 this gentleman here? Well, you got to keep reading to know that answer. And the answer is no, but you got to keep reading to figure that out. But notice the language. He uses creation language from Genesis and the Noah story. The dawn, the morning, the sun, cloudless morning, rain that falls and, 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 and sprouts the earth. So you get plants and trees and grass. This is all creation language. He is longing for a king who would rule justly, who is greater than he. 
Then notice where he goes, verse 5, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. You see why chapter 7 is so important. David's only hope for Israel in his last days is that he is not the hope of Israel. There is one coming who will rule and reign in eternal kingdom. He will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire, but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Isn't this language sticking out to you? He's looking for a man, a royal man, a ruler, and he says, but look out, there will be a worthless man who comes. And notice what he is associated with here. Death. And thorns and everything else mentioned. Doesn't that sound familiar? What he's saying is he's reading his Bible and he's saying, the seed of the woman will come and triumph. And he will triumph over the seed of the woman. And his kingdom will be far greater than David's. So he's looking for a future Messiah. Notice there that this brings us all the way back to the early part of 1 Samuel. It begins with life. And First and Second Samuel are really one book, and it ends with death. But it ends with death looking to new life in Solomon. But, but, but you begin with life, and you end with death. And what led to the story of Saul and David? It was the hope that Israel had that if only they had a king, they would have Eden. And what did God tell Israel? You don't want that. For one, there's a thing called taxes. Wait till you find out what that's like. And he says, look, the problem is, I'm your king. Not these guys. These are pseudo-saviors who may be promising at the beginning, but will lead to destruction in the end. Because in the heart of man is a bite of the serpent. So you get to the end, and what is the hope that David has? That for Israel, God would be their king. And this will only happen when he who rules justly comes. After all, isn't that really the central message of First and Second Samuel? Go back to 2 Samuel. You don't have to turn there. 2 Samuel uh, Seven, this isn't working all of a sudden. Maybe in a button push. No big deal. 2 Samuel 7, 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. You remember the, last, the first time God uses the word plant? He plants Adam and Eve in a garden. Same word. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. You see, you see what God's doing here? He's using flawed saviors, if, if we can use the term, pseudo-saviors, to bring rest for his people. But David isn't the answer. It's one who comes after him. Same thing in 2 Samuel 22. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his seed 
forever. See, that's the point of First and Second Samuel. It's not to look at Saul as our Savior or David as our Savior or any elected official as our Savior, but to look to Christ. Now you understand why Jesus gets on a donkey like David had in Chronicles. He marches into the city. And what are the people singing? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he and he alone who comes in the name of the Lord. I've worn you out. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.